Section 15 of The Beginning of the Middle Ages by Richard William Church. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 7 The Carolingians, Charles the Great, Part 2. Thus a new power arose in Europe, new in reality and in its relations to society, though old in name. It was formally but carrying the line on of the successors of Augustus and Constantine, but substantially it was something very different. Its authors could little foresee its destinies, but it was to last in some sort the political center of the world which was to be for a thousand years and the Roman Church, which had done such great things, which had consecrated the new and mighty kings of the Franks, and had created for the mightiest of them the imperial claim to universal dominion, rose with them to a new attitude in the world. Humble as she was in outward bearing to the terrible warrior she had crowned, she drew from the act her vast pretensions to be the interpreter of providence, the giver of kingdoms, the mistress of nations, the arbitress of the allegiance of mankind. What might not that authority bestow or take away which had renewed and given the Roman Empire? The coronation of Charles at Rome, in the face of an imperial line at Constantinople, finally determined, though it did not at once accomplish, the separation of East and West, of Greek and Latin Christianity. This separation had long been impending, perhaps becoming inevitable. The old tradition of the necessary unity both of the Church and the Empire had resisted it, but on the other hand there were the separating forces of distance, of difference of language and race, of antagonist and irreconcilable claims. There was also diversity of interests and dangers between Rome and Constantinople, between East and West. The emperor at Constantinople, while he was the only emperor, kept a nominal but feeble hold on the West. He had a footing, though a precarious one, in Italy. Rome acknowledged or defied him according to the turn of events or the balance of strength. He had the Pope as his subject, and was sometimes able to make him feel, when refractory, the penalties of resistance. But besides the natural uneasiness of the Romans under the supremacy of Greek and modern Constantinople, there was the growing alienation of East and West in religious thought. The Eastern Church had been the scene of a series of fierce dissensions and great schisms. The Monophysite controversy in the 7th, under Justinian, had led on to the Monothelite controversy in the 7th, under Heraclius and his family, and these were followed in the beginning of the eighth by the great strife about the use of images, provoked by the reforming zeal of Leo the Isaurian and his successors. In all these controversies the emperors had interfered with a high hand, both as rulers and as theologians, and had imposed their statements of doctrine and their laws, sometimes not without violent resistance, on their bishops and people. In the West there was far less learning and subtlety, but there was a steadier and less variable tradition of teaching. The popes found themselves in constant conflict with the East. They sometimes submitted and found themselves entangled in heresy for their compliance. More often they opposed or moderated. 
but the result was increasing suspicion and jealousy, increasing irritation on both sides, and an increasing desire on the part of the popes, as heads of the Western Church, to shake off all dependence, political as well as ecclesiastical, on the East. It was this growing estrangement, as well as the desire to call back authority, if not greatness, to Rome, which prompted Pope Leo III to crown the King of the Franks. He accomplished more than probably he intended. He meant to throw off a galling yoke, to free his own hands from inconvenient and mischievous shackles. But out of the rift which he made grew the greatest and most hopeless schism in the Christian Church. It is possible that Charles may have had designs for uniting East and West under himself, by family alliances or otherwise. He certainly negotiated, and he wished to disarm Eastern jealousy. Ultimately, he was content with a recognition of his title by the Greek emperor. But the rivalry was too distinct and formidable for negotiations to disguise. Have the Frank as a friend, but not as a neighbor, was the Greek saying. One Roman Empire was still the only received theory, but one Roman Empire, with its seat in the West, or one Roman Empire governed in partnership by two emperors of East and West, had become impossible in fact. The theory of its unity continued for ages, but whether the true successor of Augustus and Theodosius sat at Constantinople or somewhere in the West remained in dispute till the dispute was ended by the extinction of the Eastern Empire by the Turks on May 29, 1453. Charles's military successes, his good understanding with the Church, and finally his assumption of the place of Roman Emperor, strengthened and developed his strong bent toward political organization and social improvement. In that early stage of political experience and knowledge, the work was very limited which the ablest and strongest man could do in securing order and giving a better direction to the wild and ungovernable forces around him. But in Charles we see for the first time since the Goth Theodoric, and in more favorable circumstances than his, the strong purpose to restrain disorder, to foster all that seemed healing and hopeful in the state of things around him. If his unresting activity turned out afterwards to be in many respects fruitless or even mischievous, this is but what might be expected in times when the wisest measured imperfectly the real facts about them and the consequences of what they did. Results are at all times apt to fall short of intentions. It is eminently the case when society is emerging out of the inexperience of barbarism into the efforts of civilization. Charles was an administrator rather than a legislator, though his laws and his revisions of former laws were numerous. His system of government was simple, and he aimed at combining, with the exercise of his own authority, the sanction of publicity and popular concurrence. The force of his administration consisted in the method and energy which he infused into the public service, the steadiness and activity which he required of his agents, and the patient vigilance with which he watched over the whole, though it is more than probable that in that rough time these agents carried out but inadequately and unequally his attempts to establish some sort of discipline in the vast and wild world over which he presided. 
His officers were of two classes. There was the local hierarchy, dukes governing provinces, some of which have since become kingdoms, bishops with extensive domains, enjoying great immunities, counts and inferior chiefs, either territorial or in the great cities, removable at pleasure, though with the natural tendency to become hereditary. All were bound both to the political and military service of the kingdom. And next, there was a central system of special commissioners, envoys, delegates, misi, as they were called, deputed with ample powers from the king himself to different parts of his realm, to superintend, and if necessary, to take into their hands the administration of justice, and generally to inspect, examine, reform, report, and thus to bring the whole of the kingdom under the superintendence and, as it were, within the touch of the central authority. Further besides that, he was incessantly moving about in different parts of his kingdom. He brought himself twice every year, face to face, with his chiefs and people in the general assemblies, Mali Plakita, which according to the Teutonic custom of doing all important things in stated gatherings of chiefs and freemen, were held in spring and autumn for public business. The place of meeting varied, but it seems to have been always in the eastern and German part of the Frank kingdom. The meeting was sometimes held, as in the Saxon campaigns, in the heart of the enemy's country, and served as the gathering point for the summer's war. But the spring meeting especially brought together all that was most powerful and important in the kingdom round the king, and though his authority was paramount and his policy was his own, all was done in public and derived strength from public cognizance and assent. Of the mode of holding these assemblies we have a contemporary account from Adelhart, Charles's relative and minister, which shows how in them Charles came into contact not only with his bishops and great men, but with all classes of his subjects, and how in a rough and informal way their opinions were brought before him, and he learnt from the best information the tempers and conditions of the distant parts of his kingdom. Of the business done in these assemblies we have records in the collection of public acts called the Capitularies of the Frank Kings. They are a vast and most miscellaneous accumulation of laws, regulations, judicial decisions, moral precepts, literary extracts, royal orders, articles of inquiry civil and ecclesiastical, circulars and special letters, down to inventories of farm stock, household furniture, and garden stuff and implements in the king's residences. All these documents emanated from the king and were communicated by him to the assemblies. They cover the whole field of life. With scarcely an attempted order, they show the confusion with which matters of every sort, political, religious, economical, were all thrown together in the attempt to regulate them. But they also show the strong instinct of early days as to the moral and spiritual laws which underlie and animate the outward framework of civil society. Few collections of laws contain such curious materials for a picture of the ideas and habits of the time. Charles's efforts had but a partial influence on the disorder of his age. The existence of his laws does not necessarily imply their actual effect. This, which must always be remembered in any attempt to illustrate history by legislative records, 
is specially true of times like his. But his legislation marked where the disorder was, and it left on men's minds a stronger impression than any of which the trace is to be found before his time of the public rights of the state and of the obligations toward it, both of its rulers and members. The capitularies first exhibit with some distinctness that idea of the public interest, as distinct from the rights and claims of individuals, which is the one germ of civilized order, and which gives the measure of its progress. Lastly, in the capitularies are to be found in their earliest form the legalized beginnings of some of the most characteristic institutions belonging to modern Europe. We see the rudiments of that feudal system which so powerfully influenced its political growth, its social ideas, its customs as to the tenure of land, its industry, and the distribution of its wealth. We see, too, the earliest outlines of the manifold relations between Christian kings and the church, of the whole system of benefices and endowments, civil and religious, and of the widespread law of tithes. The order which Charles tried to establish in his kingdom, he tried to establish in the church. He found in it two opposite conditions. On the one hand, in its public character and its high places, it was lapsing deeper and deeper into that worldliness and license which were the fruits of the favor which it had received from its coarse and brutal Merovingian patrons. Its chiefs, the bishops and abbots, had become a privileged and powerful order in the state. But along with this had come a decline in all learning, in their sense of their real duties, and in public sentiment about these duties. Bishops, like dukes and counts, rode to battle and fell in the wars, and often lived as carelessly and selfishly as the courtiers and soldiers from whom they were often taken. Even the sainted bishops of the 7th and 8th centuries were often men engaged in the quarrels of the Merovingian courts, like St. Arnulf or St. Leger, or they were pious and skillful craftsmen, devoting their art to religion, like St. Eloi, and adding to it earnest but very humble teaching. It was no wonder that Charles Martel invested a good soldier with the two archbishoprics of Reims and Treves, and his nephew with the bishoprics of Paris and Bayeux, and the archbishopric of Rouen, besides two great abbeys. It is no wonder to read of a pope asking Charles's son to punish a faithless Roman envoy by making him a Frank bishop in order to keep him in exile. The schools of the monasteries barely kept alive the knowledge of Latin, the only access to the inherited wisdom of the world, the only access to Christian teaching. Of all the Christian centuries, the seventh is in the West the most barren of literary effort and spiritual greatness. In that great sea which had become the center of Western Christendom, the bishops of Rome had begun to travel fast along that downward road which was to lead them step by step from the nobleness and devotion of the first Leo and the first Gregory through a miserable greed after provinces and cities to the incredible scandals of the tenth century. At Rome, too, in the pursuit of worldly greatness and power, learning, together with better things than learning, perished. In the letters of the popes to the Frank kings in the eighth century, adulation and servility, the servility of a beggar who whines and threatens, are sometimes expressed in Latin, which defies the most elementary rules of ordinary grammar.
but though much belonging to religion and everywhere relating to literature was at the lowest level, there was another side to this. There were in this age of deep degeneracy good and earnest men who could act if they could not write. That very seventh century which saw the Frank Episcopate so widely corrupt was the age of one of the purest and boldest missionary efforts on record. The seventh century was the age of the conversion of England, the age of Augustine and Theodore of Tarsus, of Aidan and Chad and Aldhelm. It was the age of the missions of the Irish monks, Columban and his followers, in Burgundy and in the vast unknown heathendom beyond it, in the plains and forests of central Europe, in the Alpine valleys, and on the Danube and the Rhine. A Frank missionary, Emerin from Poitiers, was the apostle and martyr of the Bavarians. Toward the end of the seventh century, when Christianity had taken root in England, and its first fruits had appeared in the piety and learning of the Northumbrian Bede of Jero, a burst of missionary zeal carried English teachers, emulating their Irish forerunners, to win to the gospel the lands from which their fathers had come. Willibrord of Ripon preached to the heathen of Friesland and founded the See of Utrecht. His great follower, the Devonshire Winfred, afterwards known by the Latin name of Boniface, the first Archbishop of Mainz, devoted his life in the first half of the eighth century, first as a preacher and then as a martyr, to the conversion of the Germans, Frisians, Saxons, Hessians, Thuringians, Bavarians. He not only preached but organized. Armed with authority from the two greatest powers in the West, the King of the Franks and the Pope of Rome, he mapped out the new missionary conquests into dioceses, he founded sees where the conquest was still to be made, he held the first German councils about 743. He also founded monastic schools like the famous Fulda, families of earnest men devoted to a definite work, the work of evangelizing. The effect was great, of Teutonic preachers coming to Teutonic populations from lands of Teutonic occupation and with the tie of a common language. Some of the oldest specimens of the languages of continental Germany are the translations made for the use of the German converts, the baptismal forms, the Lord's Prayer, the Creed. End of section 15